Good morning, Northgate. It's good to be with you again this morning via Zoom. I pray that for those of you that are able to make it in person, that we will also have a time together. But meanwhile on Zoom, we're continuing on with our readings through the New Testament that we've been going through as a church over this summer period. And if you've been tracking along, we would have covered 2 Corinthians 2 to 8, Mark 7 till 13, the book of Jude, and Acts 2 to 6. I recognize there's a lot to read there, and uh, it's a lot to cover, and it's a lot to retain, but as I'm reading it and really enjoying doing this, I recognize that there are just sections of it that just kind of pop off the page, or they just stand out, and they they go through my mind. And so in order to prepare for this message, I actually read all the passages at the beginning of the week and then continued to go through them throughout the week. And it's interesting how certain phrases and thoughts stay with me and the Lord causes me to ponder them and to wonder what they're really saying and to sit and to pray through them. So I'd like to share that with you this morning. As I do, I can picture my sunroom here and it's uh, something my wife designed to remind her of her parents home in California. When we go to California, when we go in the summertime, which we haven't done for a while, I would, my favorite thing actually would be to get a life raft and, and just like one of those floating rafts or tubes or something like that. And I'd lie down and I'd just soak in the sun and uh, you know, cover my head so I don't get burned there. But the, the pool pump would be going, the, the water would be lapping, the birds are chirping, the sky is brilliant blue, and it's like 85 Fahrenheit every day and sunny. And, um, you know, just the sun is blazing and everything's beautiful. But I'd love to lie in the pool. And as I did so, I would just kind of move my fingers just a little bit and, and angle my way to be near one of their jasmine vines that climbs all over the side of the brick walls that surround their backyards there. My in-laws have three of these jasmine vines and they take them for granted, but I lie there and I just absorb the smell. And then I fall asleep and forget where I am and wake up and wonder, but I enjoy the beauty of that smell. Sometimes we go down in the wintertime, we're hoping to go down this November. And so I'll be leaving here and we'll likely have freezing rain and, you know, snow doesn't smell nice, but I'll go down there and the plants will still be blooming. And the, many of the trees will still have leaves on them and flowers will be there. And so what I love to do is in the off season like that, I love to walk through the, the, the tract where my in-laws live. And I love to look at people's homes and see what's growing in their gardens. And quite frankly, it's a little bit weird. Um, I actually smell. I go around and I, I smell the flowers and look at the beauty of it all. And if you think that's weird, it's Southern California, anything goes. So I just fit in. So I enjoy the beauty, the aroma. And what made me think of that not only is the beauty of just what surrounds me here in the summer season we have, but is this idea of aroma. As I was reading in 2 Corinthians, Two verses 14 to 15, Paul is describing um, the, the Christians, the followers of Christ in this way. 
He says now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are like a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. So there's a contrast. Same aroma, but two different reactions to it. We are the fragrance of Christ. The fragrance of Christ rising up to God and pleasing to him. Paul warns us that some will love it. Those that are being saved will be drawn to this aroma. But those that are perishing, that don't want anything to do with this, they will see us as offensive and not like this aroma. Further on in the book of Corinthians, in the second book, chapter 3, verse 3, Paul goes on to use another example where he refers to the Corinthian believers and, and to us as letters of Christ. Verse 3 says this, And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In the previous verse, in verse 2, Paul actually says that this letter is known and read by everybody. Believers, non-believers, those who are being saved, those who are perishing. They read our letter. They smell our aroma. Some are drawn, some are offended. The question I ask myself, and I'm happy to share with you too, is what do they see? when they read this letter? What do they see when they read your letter? Well, they see that the Spirit of Christ has been written in our hearts, on our hearts. They get to see inside of us, and as they do so, they see Christ. We are no longer trying to make ourselves right with God. We're no longer trying to keep the law with all of its requirements, which we could not possibly ever keep. We regularly fail at that, but rather the very spirit of the living God is inside of us, having been written on our hearts, and it flows up and through us and out of us. So instead of our faith being tied to the law with rules and regulations, it now flows from the very center of who we are. From the center of our being, it flows up and out, deep within the very Holy Spirit in you and I. The aroma of Christ from within. The old way, on these tablets of stone, kept us bound to the law. A distance remained between us and God. A veil, so to speak, blocked the way. We couldn't see him. There was a distance between us that the law could not satisfy. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 18, reading out of the New International Version, Paul goes on to say, But when anyone turns to the Lord, when anyone comes into this living faith in Christ, the veil is taken away. 
There's no distance between us and God any longer. Verse 17 goes on to say, Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory and being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What a verse. Isn't that amazing that there was once this distance between us, and now that veil has been removed? You and I, when we turn to the Lord, it's taken away, and we get to see, we get to receive the Spirit of Christ into our lives. We get to see Christ and contemplate on his glory. We get to have this freedom that wells up within us and flows through us. There is no longer a veil. There's no longer a distance between us and God. Instead, we are able to contemplate his glory. Well, that was one of the parts in the scriptures that we've been reading that really just stood out to me. And I recognized, what does it mean for you and I to contemplate God's glory. It's obviously a powerful thing because Paul goes on and says, and as we do, our lives are being transformed by contemplating this glory. I'm consciously asking the Lord to show me what that means. Lord, how can I contemplate your glory? And part of what I recognize that is not the regular routine of my prayer life is to love and to fellowship with him. To thank him. Thank him for who he is. To remember to thank him for the cross. To remember to thank him that I once had this veil between me and him. That I came to him in my brokenness. That I came to him as a sinner. That he came to me and saved me. He reached down to me. As I contemplate and think of this glory, I think of him for my salvation, as my savior, my redeemer, my healer, the one who sanctifies me, makes me whole, pure, holy, the coming king. <laughs> redeemer is coming. His glory, seeing it, contemplating. There's a sense of an unhurriedness with that. It's not a quick read. It's not a quick dash. It's actually staying in it. So as I've been working and, and reading through these passages all week, I've actually been thinking about it when I'm out gardening, when I'm at work, when I'm driving. I'm thinking these thoughts, contemplating these words, and in doing so, desiring to contemplate the glory of God. Beautiful how this verse goes on to say that as we do so, as we contemplate the glory of God, as we see him for who he is, the result is that we are transformed. You see, we become like the ones or like what we look at. We become like what we gaze at. So if I am gazing at Christ, if I am contemplating Christ, if I am considering Christ and thinking on his word and his spirit is living and dwelling within me, I become like him. I just become like him. Isn't that beautiful? 
And it's such a contrast between the law where I had to work at all these things. Rather, I'm invited to let the Spirit live within me, flow within me, revealing Christ to me. And as I do so, I become like him. It's a work of his Spirit. It's my response to his Spirit, not my effort to make it happen. Effort is something we fall back to so easily, even as believers. We go back to thinking that if we fail, that we have to do something to make it right. That if we do something, this is how I please God. And the unfortunate thing is many times I, I run into people who have been on their journey with Christ for a long time and they still can't quite grasp that they're loved by him. They still see themselves as servants, as doers. And Jesus in this passage is revealing to us that it's his spirit within us that gives us this freedom where we cry out, Abba, Father, we are your sons and daughters. Your spirit is within us. We're alive to you. Jesus gives a very clear warning, though, later uh, in the Gospel of, of Mark, later on in the readings that we've been doing. So as we've been going through Corinthians, we also go through Mark. And Jesus uses this example um, to be, for us to be very careful that this joy and freedom that we find in Christ will not be altered by two very strong forces around us that existed then, and the same sense of it exists today. In Mark 8, verse 15, Jesus says something, and when I was reading it, it just stayed with me, and it just stayed with me, and it just stayed with me. He is cautioning his disciples. They're on a boat. They have a loaf of bread in front of them, and he's using this bread as an example for them. He's saying, you know, this bread, if it's unleavened, nothing happens. It, But if you put leaven in it, it totally changes the shape and culture of the bread. So he cautions them using this example, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, I've heard that said many, many times. But there's another part that he also says, and this caught my interest. And beware of the leaven of Herod. Now, in some Gospels, it says leaven of the Sadducees, and the two are could be related and refer to each other. But what caught my interest was, what does this look like to you and to me today? He cautioned them, watch out for it. This little bit, two teaspoons of, of um, yeast, Puffs up a whole loaf of bread, just a little bit. So a little bit of leaven can change us and not into a way we want to be changed into. Not like Christ, but instead like these other forces. Well, the Pharisees, they were not a letter of Christ. They had no aroma of Christ in him. They did not have the spirit of God in them. They were living their lives, rather, out of these tablets of stone, out of the law, out of them living it out and doing what they perceived the law said for them to be pleasing to God. They were much more concerned with how they looked on the outside. They were not a letter that you would read on the inside. They made sure that nobody saw the inside. They lived for the appearance of man. They lived better than you and me. They lived in a way that was almost unattainable for us. 
They were above us. Oh, Jesus just looked at them and he, he called them, you are whitewashed tombstones. You're not living life of Christ. You're living rules and regulations. Your efforts, your ways, not mine. Hated Jesus for saying that. But Jesus also refers to this leaven of Herod, and that's really what caught my interest as well. So what's he referring to? Well, it's likely he's referring to worldly ways, society, political pressures, the church, the Sadducees aligned themselves along with Herod, and they worked their way um, to gain favor, and they were culturally acceptable. The truth of God was buried by this way of life. There was no aroma of Christ in anything they did. They weren't offensive to those that were perishing. The moral law, whatever was established by the morality of the day, superseded anything of God and of God's law. The Herodians were actually distinguished by sensuality, by corrupt living, and by self-centeredness. That could be today, couldn't it? When we look around us, we recognize that God's law is so superseded by man's moral law. We don't follow him as a society. Many of us don't follow him as believers. We allow the culture around us to change what he says to us affect what he wants of us. Many of us just blatantly disobey God's law because it's morally acceptable to do it this other way. It sounds so much like the world around us and I wish I could encourage you that it's not going to get harder, but I know it will. It's going to get more and more difficult live out of this law of God which is written in our hearts, from the Spirit of God which is in our hearts, above the moral law that society says all around us. I love this example of the aroma of Christ, where Paul says to some, to those that are on their path to come into Christ, that aroma is glorious. But to those who are perishing, to those who are living the way of the world, to those who are living the life of Herod and Herodianism. This aroma is offensive. And they will see you and I as offensive. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have the love of God in us. And to all, to be as loving as we can be, we are loving. But to some, this love, this aroma, this Christ, will be offensive. We have to be okay with that. I don't look down on anybody that doesn't see the same way I do, but the same way I don't compromise. What I see God's life to be, God's law to be, God's ways to be, that are above the moral law of society around us. There are many difficult decisions that await us. As parents, it's gonna be more and more difficult Navigating the school systems, navigating the, the even as churches and businesses and owners. There's such pressures against us. 
to live out this life of Christ. All the more reason for us to go back to that place of contemplating the glory of God, of living in the presence of God, of nothing between us, no veil between us, but being in his presence, hearing his word, being in his life, being transformed by him. Yes. That's the only way it will survive us. It's not going to be through our efforts. It's not going to be through our attempts. But it will be through the Spirit of Christ living in us, revealing truth to us, revealing Christ to us, revealing the glory of God to us. We indeed, you and I, are meant to be letters of Christ. We are meant for others to be able to see inside what I'm really like inside, not different inside than the outside, not living one way and acting another way, but rather the Spirit of Christ in my heart, through my heart, so that you can see and anyone else can see Christ in me, a letter of Christ, my life in him, contemplating his glory, living in this glory, being transformed by this glory, looking like Christ, being transformed so I look like Christ, so that you look like Christ. Freedom, life not under the law, but freedom to live in the fullness of all the Spirit of God has designed for us. Our lives, yours and mine, as we follow Christ in this way, we're pleasing aroma to him and to those that are searching for him and coming into faith. A letter for all to read. Glory to God. Father, thank you that you want our lives to be authentically true to you and to allow your spirit to live in the fullness within us. Nothing fake, nothing put on, nothing of us trying to please man, but living out of the fullness of lives, pleasing to you, an aroma to you. Thank you. Thank you for this ability to be able to see you, to contemplate you, that your word is alive and real and active. A two-edged sword that pierces within, but freezes as it does so. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you so much for your living word, for ministering to us today. Thank you. Amen. God bless you, Northgate. I'll see you soon.